Everybody has a dream. You have dreams, I have dreams. Maybe you had childhood dreams that you thought about what you were going to be when you grew up or what kind of house you were going to live in or how many kids you might have. But the hardships and the disappointments of life, they have a way sometimes of taking our dreams and just shattering them. And sometimes you find yourself looking down at all these broken dreams around your feet and the sound of those crashing dreams is often accompanied with the sound of a breaking heart because we put so much of ourselves into our dreams. We, we build our lives. We plan our activities around them. But as the Bible often reminds us, we can make our plans for tomorrow, but what tomorrow brings is out of our control. In fact, Proverbs 16.1 says we can make our plans, but the final outcome is in God's hands. Maybe it's the, the birth of a long-awaited child. A happy marriage, a a hard-won promotion, that first home, a a long-saved-up-for vacation, our children or our grandchildren's happiness or that nest egg you've been saving up for retirement. We work, we plan, we dream. But life doesn't always obey our well-laid plans. And one day life just steps in and suddenly we're faced with the reality that the dream that we've invested in for so long will never be. Or maybe it's going to be different than what we thought it was going to be. And our heart asks, what do I do now? Now that those perfectly laid plans have been turned to dust, where do I turn to? What we often fail to realize is that God has a dream for us that is far grander than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And God's dream, and what I mean by that is God's will, God's plan for our life, that's what really brings us peace and purpose. So maybe when we feel like that our dreams have been derailed or dashed, maybe if we just took the time to stop and look, we'd see that what God is really doing is redirecting our steps, clearing a path for us to pursue His far better dream for us. That was certainly the case with Joseph, right? I mean, he experienced prolonged periods of disappointment, which he must have felt like the rug just kept getting pulled out from underneath his feet, right? He had these big dreams, these God-given dreams, and they kept getting crushed by those that he trusted and he worked so hard for, stabbed in the back, taken for granted, abused and misused, forsaken and forgotten. Would his dreams ever come true? Would those plans of God ever come to fruition. And along the way, to add insult to injury, Joseph kept seeing other people's dreams come true, right? The cupbearer's dream came true. The baker's dream, unfortunately, came true. Pharaoh's dreams were coming true. But tonight, or for you, this morning, it's finally Joseph's turn. Those dreams he dreamt so long ago as a boy. Remember those dreams? where his brothers, the the 11 stalks of wheat, were bowing down to his stalk of wheat. Or the the, the sun, moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to him. Those dreams, whatever they might mean, were on the verge of being realized. But, we, we talk about what happens when our dreams don't come true. What happens when our dreams do come true? What happens when that door of opportunity is finally opened and we can walk through it? Because, you know, sometimes that can be a little scary, can't it? I mean, we really don't like change, even when that change is good. 
What do we do when those dreams come true? What must we be prepared to face when that happens? For example, Pharaoh's dreams came true, and yes, it meant seven years of plenty, a feast. But then came the phantom, the fan, <laughs> but then came the famine, right? I've got to tell you, doing this pre-recorded thing, it's so tempting just to stop and say, let's do this over, right? There was feast and there was famine. There was plenty, but then there was want. And they had to be prepared for that. So dreams coming true can come with a price. What about Joseph's dreams? Well, Joseph's going to be put into a position to save his family, not just physically, but spiritually, relationally. And as we read the rest of Joseph's story, we might think that he's being a little hard or cruel with his brothers. Maybe he's kind of toying with them, but I don't think so. I think he is walking the often difficult road of realizing God's dreams and following God's plan. Joseph was wise enough to know there's no such thing as instant reconciliation, especially with this new position of power, right? I mean, Joseph wanted to know that his brothers were actually sorry for what they had done. He wanted to see if they had changed. And if he were just to instantly reveal himself to them, do you think he really could have trusted that they were sincere? He had to find a way to help his brothers come to a place of confession and repentance from their sin so that they could enjoy a true and lasting reconciliation with their brother. So Joseph, in today's story, Joseph patiently and wisely develops a plan to bring about this restoration, this forgiveness. And as is so often true when we follow God's plan, Joseph and his brothers have to be prepared for a time of testing, a time of tension, and a time of transition. Let's look at those elements of this story, beginning in Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was so afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So that promised seven years of plenty has come and gone. And now famine is spreading over the whole world. And thanks to Joseph, Egypt has more than enough food. They have so much food, they're able to actually sell food to the neighboring countries. And Jacob hears about this, and he sends his sons to get the food, all of them except Benjamin. He's treating Benjamin like he treated Joseph, right? Because Benjamin is his last living connection with Rachel, the love of his life. Jacob had two sons by Rachel. He's lost one, Joseph. He is is clinging to Benjamin. And we see a glimpse in this part of the story into the character of the other sons, the ten. For one thing, Jacob is obviously suspicious about them, right? He's not going to trust Benjamin into their care, especially on such a potentially long and dangerous trip. I mean, Egypt was a good three to four week journey on foot at this time. Which may be one of the reasons Joseph's son, Jacob's sons didn't want to go to Egypt, right? I mean, Jacob's rebuke here in verse 1 is, you know, why are you just sitting around looking at each other? They obviously 
there was some inaction here. There was some indecision about this growing crisis. They knew there was grain in Egypt, but they just didn't want to do anything about it. I, I think it's more than just a long, dangerous journey that was keeping them from going to Egypt. I think there was a lot of guilt because Egypt is where they sold their brother into slavery. And of course, none of them could have known that through all of this, the sovereign, providential grace of God was unfolding. As God does throughout the Bible, as God is doing even today in the midst of this pandemic, He takes the crises in our lives and He uses them to advance His good purpose. Whether that's a beauty pageant in Persia or a Roman census in the days that Jesus was born, whether it's a a plague or a famine, God works to bring all things together for the good of those He loves and is called according to His purpose. And we see that happen here. Let's continue on in verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and, and one is no more. Once again... Notice here the providential presence of God. Do you think that Joseph oversaw the distribution of all of the grain requests in Egypt? Of course not. He was the second in command of the empire. He had had people under him to manage all of that stuff. And do you think there was just one city where people could go to get grain? No, there were multiple grain storage and distribution facilities. But God made sure that Joseph was at this city when Jacob's sons came there. God made sure that Joseph was overseeing things and checking up on things that day. And can you imagine what went through Joseph's minds when he recognized that these were his brothers bowing down before him? I mean, you talk about a shock. You're talking about something you would never expect. You're talking about those childhood dreams that must have been rushing back into his mind. I wonder how long it had been since he'd even thought about those dreams. It must have seemed like a lifetime ago. Of course, he recognized them, but his brothers didn't recognize him. I mean, why would they? It's not that they had forgotten about their brother. I think, in fact, they carried around a lot of guilt and shame about him. I think every time that he came up with their father, and they continued to maintain that lie with him, I think it struck a chord with them. No, they didn't recognize Joseph because he looked like an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. Because this was the second highest man in all of Egypt. I mean, I think, first of all, they were shocked that such a high official would be there. They weren't expecting him to be there that day. And they certainly wasn't expecting that man to be their brother they had sold into slavery so many years ago. As far as they knew, he was dead. But when they bowed to him, Joseph not only recognized them, Joseph recognized the hand of God in this. And he was actually being faithful 
in seeing that that long-ago promise of God, those dreams God had given him, were going to come true. And you see, this next part actually speaks to Joseph's faith in the Lord. Because remember, those dreams that he had, how many stalks of grain bowed down, how many stars bowed down, was 11, wasn't it? How many brothers are in front of him right now? Only 10. For those dreams to really be fulfilled, he has to see Benjamin. Benjamin has to come. Now, I can't imagine how hard it must have been for Joseph at this moment not to either burst into tears or to fly off in a fit of rage when he sees his brothers, right? When he hears the voices of these men, the last time he heard these voices, they were laughing and eating while he was in a pit. They were counting out the silver as he was being dragged down the road to be sold as a slave. And when they mentioned the brother that was no more, man, what self-control he must have had to not react at that. See, Joseph has something in mind, a test and a lesson for his brothers. Let's continue in verse 14. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words will be tested to see if you're telling the truth. And he puts them into custody for three days. Now he thinks about this a little bit more. And on the third day, he says, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here. So he kind of reverses his plan here. He thought about this a little bit more. He's going to keep one there. He's going to send the rest back with grain to their starving households. He says, but you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. So Joseph wants to teach them first what it's like to be in confinement, all right? To, what, what it's like to be put away for something they didn't do. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated here, uh, held in prison, simply means uh, captive or in custody. So again, they're not put behind bars in some dungeon cell. They're not chained to a wall or something like that. They're probably just kept under guard on house arrest. And so Joseph is already treating them better than he treated them, right? At least they're not in the bottom of a dry cistern. Joseph isn't testing them out of revenge. He's not trying to be petty. He fears God. He genuinely loves his family, no matter what they've done. And he wants to see God's dream fulfilled. He wants to see his father. He wants to see his brother Benjamin. And he wants to see if his brothers have changed at all. Are they going to forsake Simeon in Egypt, the way they forsook him. So we pick it back up in verse 21. We're going to keep this thing moving. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life that we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, and then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So already the brothers are beginning to sense that this wasn't just an Egyptian official testing them and teaching them a lesson. No, this was God dealing with them for their sins against Joseph and this continued deceit they were, they were keeping alive with their father. So Joseph's plan is already working. 
And without realizing that he can understand them, they start to discuss the terrible ways that they had mistreated their brother. And Reuben gives a good old-fashioned, I told you so, you guys are just listening to me. Now, this part of the story where Reuben protests their treatment of Joseph, I think this was news to Joseph. I don't think Joseph knew that part of the story. Which is why when he hears that, he turns away weeping. I think this for Joseph was the moment that really put him over the edge, and it's the first of six times that we read in this whole story that Joseph has to go away weeping, overwhelmed with his emotions. It's really an insight into Joseph's character to pay attention to what makes him weep. And isn't that true of all of us? Is that not a good question for all of us? What makes me weep? What is it that breaks my heart? Because that says a lot about our priorities. So yes, Joseph was stern and severe with his brothers, but he was also kind and loving. His, his purpose wasn't revenge. It wasn't punishment. It really was love. And he, what he was doing ultimately was for their good. It was for the good of their relationship. It really reminds me of the way God treats sinful humanity. The Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two that we should consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. And his redemptive work, yes, God is stern towards sinners, but it's for the purpose of bringing them to himself so they can experience the kindness of his grace. God's dream for all of humanity is that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But that road to redemption has to go through the valley of conviction. And it's a stern road. It's a narrow, winding, and rough road. Not many choose to walk that road. It's like a time of testing in the wilderness. In fact, when we present the gospel to people, this is the bad news part of it, right? The part where we're te- we tell people they're lost in their sins, that they're destined to an eternity, separated from a holy God, and that there's nothing they can do about it. There's no good in themselves that can ever make up for the sin in their lives. They've got a debt they can never pay. They need a Savior. Our job is to tell people that hard truth. The Spirit's job is to then bring them under conviction for their sin. And it's this part of the gospel, it's that convicting work of the Spirit, that confrontation with the truth that leads to this next part. We go from a time of testing to a time of tension. And we're going to go through this part a little bit quicker, but I want you to notice the different emotions and responses that come about in this time of tension, because this is true for each of us. First, we see fear. In verse 25, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done, they loaded their grain on the donkeys, they left. Well, they get to a place where they stop for the night, and one of them opens his sack to get feed, and he sees his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver's been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. It says their hearts sank. They turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to him. And and then they just kind of recount this story back to him. And if you drop down to verse 35, as they were emptying the rest of their sacks, once they got home, there in each man's was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. So the first response we see is fear. Now, why do you think Joseph 
How do stewards put their money back in their bags? I think it's two things. One, I think it's kindness on his part. He knows that they don't have a lot of money to buy all this grain. He knows that times are tough. He wants to provide for his family. He wants to, to bless them and to feed his own family. So he pays for that himself. But it was also a test to see would they come back for their brother Simeon knowing that they might be accused of, of stealing from Pharaoh because they knew the consequences for that. It, it meant death. So that alarmed their brothers. They're afraid for their lives. They're afraid they're never going to get to go back and see Simeon again. And while this left them fearful, it left Jacob in despair. Look at verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both my sons to death if you do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. We see this despair. And notice that Jacob... And what he says here, I think he at least suspects, if not knows, that the reason that Joseph is gone is because of them. Whether that was intentional on their part or neglect on their part, he blames them for Joseph's death. And he's a not to about. He's not about to entrust Benjamin to them. This cry of anguish, everything is against me. I'm sure you've been there before. I know I have. Where it just seems like everything is against you from a human perspective, it can seem that way. But what he doesn't realize is that God is behind the scenes working through all of this to bring good for Jacob and his family. It's amazing how often we can mistake God's hand at work in our lives for bad rather than for good. And we respond to God's providential presence with fear and despair just as they do. Sort of like the disciples in the boat during the storm, remember? Jesus is there with them, and they're afraid that they're going to sink, and they wake him up and they say, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? It's like Jonah fleeing God's call to go and preach to Nineveh because he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want God to be merciful and gracious uh, towards them. It's like the early church that thinks that certainly Gentiles can't be saved. What is going on? No, they, they've got to become Jews first. We often get God wrong, don't we? We fail to have, to have the kind of divine imagination to see His hand at work in the difficulties of life and the unexpected development of events in our world. We, that divine imagination that says God can bring light from death. He can bring light from darkness. He can bring beauty from ashes. Habakkuk 1.5 says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. We fail to believe because we fail to open our eyes and look to God, the maker of heaven and earth, the author and finisher of our faith. We don't keep our eyes on the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We're not keeping our eyes on the finish line and running with endurance the race that's been set out before us because we keep looking behind us at where we've been. We take our eyes off Jesus and we look at the wind and the waves around us and we sink. Fear and despair often lead us 
to the inaction of delay and doubt. And we see delay here in chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. He says, Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. And then Judah reminds them, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so then down in verse 8, Judah says to Israel, because they, they kind of get into an argument about this, and then Judah says to Israel, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So week by week, they're watching their food supply dwindle down to nothing. And they know the solution to the problem. They know what they have to do, but no one is willing to do anything about it because of fear and despair. The brothers are fearing reprisal from the Egyptian official whose silver somehow ended up in their sacks. And Jacob is so full of despair over losing Joseph and now Simeon that he just can't bear to let Benjamin go. And thankfully, Reuben and Judah both, we see that they have really grown, and they've changed. They've gone from plotting Joseph's murder or, or, or at least being willing to sell him into slavery to, to being willing to lay down their own life to ensure that they can go and get Simeon and come back with Benjamin too. So the brothers eventually overcome their fear, but Jacob allows his despair to really spiral into doubt. Look at verses 11 through 14. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. It's a nice little gift basket there. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Sounds a little hopeful. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, I'm bereaved. I'm bereaved. He sounds so hopeful. You think, man, that Jacob's faith is going to come roaring back. But then at the end, he just, you know, he's kind of resigned himself to grief. I look at Joseph. I compare Joseph's faith in the midst of suffering and trial with Jacob's despair and grief. And I think, man, Joseph must have learned his faithfulness from Rachel, not from Jacob. But, you know, we tend to struggle with these same feelings and these same temptations to inaction. I mean, how many of us have been given the opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker? How many of us have been given the opportunity to pray with a friend who's hurting? How many of us have the opportunity to lend a helping hand, to stand up for somebody or to confront someone with the truth? And we were afraid. And we despaired that, oh, I can't do anything to change the situation. Oh, it's beyond my control. And we missed the moment. We've all been there. Henry Blackaby calls this the crisis of belief in his study experiencing God. He says that God is at work in our lives whether we see it or not. And that work of God, he says, is ultimately to have a love relationship with each of us. And once we're confronted with our sinful condition, we're then invited to respond to His grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And that's where the crisis comes. That's where you have to make a choice. That's the time of tension. Will we respond in fear 
or faith? Despair or joy? Will we delay making a decision for Jesus until it's too late? Will we overcome our doubt enough to reach out and to trust in Him? This leads to what Henry Blackaby describes as this moment where we have to adjust our lives to join God where He is working. Once we're confronted with that reality of the gospel, once we're confronted with what God's will is for our lives, we have to make a choice. Will we relieve that tension or not? In Joseph's story, we call this the time of transition. You know, just because we give our lives to Jesus, just because we're obedient in whatever God's call is on our lives, that could be going on a mission trip, it could be serving in some ministry at the church, it could be having an intentional witnessing relationship with someone. Just because we say yes to that doesn't mean that our problems go away and everything becomes easy peasy, does it? Of course not. And so we see here with Joseph's brothers, even though they finally make the right decision to go back to Egypt in faith and trust, they have three problems to overcome. Real quick, the first one is the money problem. right? So beginning in verse 15, they, they take everything, they take Benjamin, they go down to, Jesus, to, to Egypt, and when Joseph sees Benjamin with them, he says to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare a dinner. He throws a banquet for them in essence. And, of course, they do what Joseph said. They take the men to Joseph's house. It says in verse 18, the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, oh, we're brought here because of the silver that was put into our sacks the first time. He, he's going to attack us, overpower us. He's going to seize us as slaves and take away our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each found a silver and so they explain it. They've brought it back, and, and they've brought more back. And in verse 23, he says, It's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Now imagine their surprise when the steward seems to know more about the money in their sacks than they do. And imagine their surprise when he attributes it to their God. And what in the world would this Egyptian servant know about the God of Abraham, right? But hey, at least their money problem seems to have been solved pretty easily, as if there was nothing really to ever worry about. So that problem solved. But then there's the second problem, the problem of Simeon's release. But look there at the end of verse 23, that he brought Simeon out to them. Wow, that was awfully easy too, right? I mean, so the problem of Simeon's also been solved. Now, don't you... Think, and I just, I've wondered this kinds of stuff. You know, how did this steward know that was Benjamin with them, right? I mean, there's no birth certificate. There's no picture ID. They could have brought any young Hebrew man with them. But somehow this guy knew that was Benjamin. And, of course, we know because Joseph recognized him. And I also wonder, as I read this, if Simeon really learned anything while he was, you know, under house arrest there, uh, considering his backstory and considering the blessing that, that Jacob's going to give him later on in Genesis, I doubt that he really learned his lesson. But he's been set free nonetheless. And then the third problem is Benjamin's protection. Let's finish the chapter here real quick. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that he was going to eat there. And when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought. 
They bowed down before him to the ground, all 11 of them, bow down. And he asked them how they were. And he said, how is your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. And as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went to his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Finally, Joseph's dream is fulfilled. All 11 brothers are there to bow down before him. And imagine the brothers' surprise when they find not punishment or more harsh words, but a banquet thrown in their honor. This was strange to them. And Joseph's emotions here are such a testimony to the strength of his faith in God and his tender love for his family. Think about it. After all these years of surrounded and steeped in Egyptian culture, surrounded by all the the pagan worship, he still is strong in his faith for God. He's not forsaken his love for his family. His heart, after all these years, has remained sensitive. It's not been hardened by bitterness. He has no axe to grind. And although the brothers were at first perplexed that these Egyptians somehow guessed their birth order, and this official, this Pharaoh's second-hand man, keeps getting so emotional, has to go running out of the room wiping his eyes, they were also encouraged that he so quickly approved of Benjamin. Once again, it seems like their third problem has been solved. But the most important aspect of this part of the story, this time of transition, is how Joseph's brothers went from fear to peace. They went from punishment to celebration, from bondage to freedom. They went from anxiety to joy. But it's a passing peace and joy because these brothers had yet to deal with their sin. Yes, they were relieved that they weren't going to be punished, but that's a far cry from forgiveness and reconciliation, isn't it? They still didn't even know that Joseph was alive, much less that he was the man throwing them this banquet. Consider how tragic it is when sinful people revel in a false sense of joy and peace, thinking that they are right with God because life's going well, because they're not suffering the consequences for their sins, because they feel like maybe they've gotten away with it. But nothing short of humble brokenness over sin that results in confession and repentance will ever bring about forgiveness and reconciliation with God or with others. And Joseph's brothers aren't there yet. That's next week. They still need to recognize who Joseph is, what they've done to him, and they need to ask him for forgiveness. How many people go through life enjoying the general grace that God sheds on all humanity But they fail to recognize Jesus. They don't confess of their sins and ask for forgiveness. I pray that today, wherever you stand with God,
that you recognize him for who he is and that you give him praise for all the blessings that he has given in your life. And most importantly, that you come to understand the mercy and the grace that he is extending toward you. Will you turn from your sin in confession and repentance? Will you trust Jesus by faith to forgive you of your sins and to transform you? That's this time of transition. It should be followed with a time of transformation. What about you? What is causing you despair today? What are you afraid of? What are the broken dreams that lie shattered at your feet? You know, Jesus wants you to pick up those pieces and bring them to Him. Because He's the God who takes our brokenness and He makes us whole. I pray that you won't delay. I pray that you will answer His call right now. His call to salvation. His call to baptism. Will you answer His call to unite with the church family and to go all in and say, I'm going to worship, I'm going to serve, I'm going to grow as a part of this family of faith. Will you be obedient today in whatever God is laying on your heart? God has a dream for you. You may not even realize what it is. It may be nothing like what you think your life should be. But I promise you that if you will in faith and trust obey Him and follow that path, it will be greater than your wildest dreams. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you do have a plan for each of our lives. You have a dream for each of us. You have created us for a certain purpose on this earth. And when we come to faith in Christ, you save us, you redeem us for a work, good works you have prepared in advance for us to do. To be your ambassadors, to be your agents of redemption and reconciliation to a lost and dying world, you light us with the light of Christ and you send us into the darkness. And if we want true peace and purpose in our lives, we have to follow that. We have to realize what your dream is for us. Father, I pray for those who are listening right now that that's what they would experience. Not through some kind of self-actualization, not through some kind of self-help course, but God, by surrendering their lives to you, by laying themselves bare before you and saying, forgive me of my sins, live in me, Jesus, and help me to walk after you. That's how we come to know your dreams. And there are people today that I know they're in that time of testing. You're working in their life. You're drawing them to yourself. You're, you're bringing circumstances about in their life to get their attention. You're bringing people across their path to speak a word of truth to them about the gospel and their need for Jesus. There are some today that are in that time of tension. They know the right thing to do, but they're not doing it. They may be Christians, but they're not living and walking close to you. They're not obeying your will for their lives, and they know it. I pray, God, that they would all come to that time of transition where they would make the choice to turn from their rebellious ways and to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.